As we stand in this house this morning, would you hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let's pray. Our good, our holy God, we give you thanks this morning for a chance to worship you in this place. We thank you for the hope and the victory of the gospel. We thank you for welcome at your table. We thank you for the waters of baptism that proclaim new life in Christ. We thank you for songs. We thank you for prayers. We thank you for your word. Now, God, as we open your word together, we pray that you would speak to us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. This is our prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray together saying, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. Lawrence Ferlinghetti died this week, so it put me sort of in a poetic frame of mind, so I thought I'd start this out this morning with a little verse. This is from the great American artist Jack Jones. Are you ready for some poetry? I mean, I'm a classy guy. You ready? The love boat will be making another run. The love boat promises something from everyone. Set your course for adventure, your mind on a new romance. Love won't hurt anymore. It's an open smile on a friendly shore. The love boat soon will be making another run. Now, some of you are too young to know that that was the theme song from the very popular romantic comedy, The Love Boat. It aired every Saturday night from 1977 to 1986. It was rivaled only by the genius that was Fantasy Island. <laughs> and every week you would tune in and you would watch the love boat take off for another adventure, someone attempting to wash away life and find a new one. I was disappointed but not surprised to find out that Jack Jones, the writer of the great poetry that I just read, is on his sixth marriage. <laughs> I mean, I'm not making this up. He decided that love didn't have to hurt anymore, so we set out on a new adventure from time to time, looking for those open smiles on those friendly shores. The love boat, the love boat soon will be making another run. You know, it occurs to me that the love boat is something of a picture of the human condition. I recently read a wonderful piece by David Foster Wallace titled Shipping Out from Harper's. It was something of a piece of gonzo journalism. David Foster Wallace just went on an ocean liner on a big cruise and he wrote about his experience. Early in that piece he said, there's something about a mass marketed luxury cruise that's unbearably sad. Now, he wrote about a lot of funny experiences and interesting things aboard the giant ship that he was on, but he also diagnosed a deep problem in the human heart. Somewhere about halfway through the piece, 
he began to talk about the advertising for this journey. He said, maybe we are now in a position to appreciate the falsehood at the dark heart of the brochure. For this, the promise to sate the part of me that always and only wants is the central fantasy that the brochure is selling. The thing to notice is that the real fantasy here isn't that this promise will be kept, but that such a promise is keepable at all. This is a big one, this lie. And of course, I want to believe it. I want to believe that maybe this ultimate fantasy vacation will be enough pampering that this time the luxury and pleasure will be so completely and faultlessly administered that my infantile heart will be sated at last. But the infantile part of me is by its very nature and essence insatiable. In response to any environment of extraordinary gratification and pampering, the insatiable infant part of me will simply adjust its desires upward until it once again levels out at its own homeostasis, a place of terrible dissatisfaction. And sure enough, after a few days of delight and then adjustment on the ship, the pampered, swaddled part of me that wants is now back and with a vengeance. The love boat's very sad because the love boat promised you here on this ship, here is the last stand and possibility for wholeness on your terms. Some of you have been on that ship. And some of you are leafing through the brochures. And some of you have already confessed in your heart of hearts and to your closest friends that you've been there, done that, have the t-shirt, and found it incredibly sad. This is what the Bible means when the Bible talks about sin. It's about trying to live our life on our own terms for our own ends, divorced from a vital relationship with God. The love boat doesn't hold the answers, friends, but the ship of Zion does. And our deepest need and our greatest hope is the hope that God offers us in the gospel of God and the cross and conversion. And Jesus taught us that our wanters were all busted and they've been busted from the beginning. And the pursuit of our own life is losing our life. It's denying who we're created by God to be. It's, it's denying who we were shaped and formed by the Lord to be. And he said something very strange as he walked this earth. He looked at us and he said, whoever loses their lives for my sake will find it. And that's the heart of conversion, finding our true selves as we find ourselves related to the Lord. In this passage of Scripture we read from 1 John, it gives us the rhythm, doesn't it? He laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives. 
He laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives. He laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives. Let's say it together. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives. It's two parts of the same movement. It's the grace of conversion. For a few moments, let's look at those two parts in turn. First, he laid down his life for us. John had already been talking about this in his little epistle. It's in the first chapter, it's in the second. I love the opening lines of chapter two, where John says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world. He's the sacrifice that brings atonement. The CEB says he is the way that God deals with our sin. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, this is the heart of the gospel, but it's, it's the part of the gospel that is most contentious in the current moment, particularly when you're riding on the van with the cool kids, for two reasons. The first one is, is because sin has fallen on hard times. I, I, don't mean, I don't mean that we've gotten any worse at it, and I don't mean that it's disappeared in reality. I just mean as a category it's fallen on hard times. In its place, we have introduced radical affirmation and expressive individualism. Until you ride on the love boat and find out that stuff doesn't really work in the real world. And then you have to go back to the way things really taste and you have to realize that there is a reality called sin. Brad Strawn, in his beautiful little book, Lies My Preacher Told Me, he teaches up at Duke, and, and he he's wrote a little book to try to get us to read the Old Testament again. He said one of the great lies that was told uh, is that the God in the Old Testament is a really mean God. So we can dispense with the Old Testament because the God in the New is really nice. Well, Strawn said, hey, look at the New Testament. There is wrath in the New Testament, and there is grace in the Old, and there is one God. And he suggests that the reason why we have rejected wrath in Scripture and judgment in Scripture and God's great no in the face of our sin in Scripture is because we have made peace with it. And we're okay with injustice because the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. Wrath is a servant of the love of God. Bart said, he is all that he is as the one who loves. And God has said no, and God has judged. And the good God who is love, according to John, is a God who expresses wrath in the face of our sin and rebellion because that is the requirement of someone who loves truly. 
to hate those things that stand against the love and the grace and the mercy of God. One of the reasons people do not celebrate Christ the righteous as the propitiation of our sins is because sin has fallen on hard times. Another reason, and this one's a little more sophisticated one, is that sometimes the kids on the cool kid van say, well, propitiation is a pagan idea and our God's not like that at all. Well, certainly there are pagan versions of propitiation. I was once in a village in India doing ethnographic research when a large crowd gathered in the square. A woman beautifully dressed with bangles from wrist to elbow came forward with a little bitty goat. And she took a coconut and she cracked it with a machete and she poured that coconut milk on the back of that goat and everybody stood in awe until that goat shook that milk off like a dog taking a bath and everybody cheered with delight. And then she picked up the machete and the goat laid down his life. It was a fertility ritual. They wanted to make money and babies and the goat was the cost. And some people say, well, that's propitiation. That's not what God is about. No. When you contrast these things, there's absolutely no comparison because at the cross, we don't have a group of people trying to talk God into something. We're not offering up bulls and birds and heifers and goats trying to get God to be pleased with us. God is acting at the cross. And a holy God is the one who is offering the sacrifice and is the son that is sacrificed. Here is the great wonder of it all that at the cross, the just judge is judged in our place because God has said no to sin and yes to the world. And it should drive us to awe and wonder and adoration and worship. John Stott said, there is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. He laid down his life for us. And what does that do for us? John's little epistle makes it so clear. Listen to these words in chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's a lifetime of theology. When I was a kid sitting around those Sunday school tables, our teachers would bring out that, that 63 Baptist faith and message, and we'd go through those different chapters. And I remember the one on salvation so well, where it talked about salvation in three tenses, that we're justified, and that's past tense, and we're sanctified. That's the present moment. And we will be glorified because the cross turns into a crown, and there will be one day where we'll be saved to sin no more. Past, present, future, it's all there. It's all there. We've been made at the cross, children of God. 
The great pictures in the New Testament of our entry by faith, by grace, into the life that is life in God is pictures of being born again, pictures of being adopted into the family of God. Where the spirit, where the spirit of adoption resides in our bones, enabling us to cry to God in our prayers, the same prayers that Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. God's grace makes us his children. And if we know Christ, we can look back past tense at that moment where we became the sons and daughters of God. And our hope is secure because of that past grace and event and moment and life and engrafting into the vine. And we will be like him. And everyone who has this hope is called to purify themselves in this present moment even as he is pure he laid down his life for us and it is the basis of our life it is the hope of a distant shore the true and only one and then we have assurance and we have fellowship Chapter 5, 13, and 14 lays it down again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know. What kind of things are you confident about? You can be confident about life with God. Why? Because he laid down his life for us. Do you have that confidence this morning? You can. And if you do, then the second part is pointed and directed at you. And we also ought to lay down our lives. You see, Christ's death on the cross invites us to a vicarious death. Rosaline Bradbury said, apart from cruciform death, there is no solution to the creature's predicament and no other passage to new life. You've been buried with Christ in baptism. You've been raised to walk in the newness of life. Jesus said, if you want to be mine, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We also ought to lay down our lives. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. We've already heard this morning those great words from Romans 6.5. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Walter Brueggemann says, in Christ we have an odd baptismal identity. Odd and fully human. It's odd because there's so much left outside of life in this worldly existence. There's a love boat taken off 
every single day with a line of people waiting to get on it. But the odd life of Christ, the odd life of the cross and the empty tomb is life, the life that is really living. So in Romans 6.11, Paul said, to consider yourself dead to sin, to reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To reckon ourselves dead to sin means to return day by day to that place of our utter dependency on life from God. It's a recognition that God didn't come to us offering to help tweak us and make us a little nicer or a little better. God came to raise us from the dead. And only when we acknowledge the deadness that is sin will we know the shout of Easter morning and the joy that is daily playing with Christ in this earth that is his. You see, the cross is the gateway to life. Andrew Murray said, there is but one place which is both his and mine. That place is the cross. It's his in virtue of his free choice, mine by reason of the curse of sin. He came to seek me there alone. Can I find him? Today we come to the Lord's table because Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And to say to these bones, live. Today as we come to this table, I invite you to come and eat by faith if Christ is your Savior and Lord. I invite you to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until we shall be like him. I invite you to come purifying yourself in repentance even as he is pure. I invite you to come for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Our good and our holy God, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful for your table. We thank you that we are one body and one loaf in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to celebrate you as you deserve to be celebrated. Lord, I pray for anyone here who finds all this very peculiar, but simultaneously somewhat interested. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts as you draw men and women to yourself. Lord, as we come to the table, we come with glad and grateful hearts. Seal in us through your spirit the hope of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.